0: Amen, you guys can be seated this morning, Good morning again, want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 7, John chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 40 through 52, 40 through 52 if you want to turn there now. So we've been in John chapter 7 for a couple of weeks now and we will finally come to the end this Sunday. And so we've, we've looked at this great chapter in God's Word that, as we kind of said before, is oftentimes neglected, maybe skipped over. We're familiar with John chapter 6. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. We're familiar with John chapter 8. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. But in John chapter 7, as we've gone through, we've seen that Jesus, at this feast of tabernacles, is proclaiming himself to be the fulfillment of all that this feast pointed to. And we saw that come to a climax last week in verses 37 through 39. We saw Jesus present himself as the true temple, the one out of whose innermost being will flow rivers of living water, the rivers of the Spirit, that he would ascend into heaven, pour out his Spirit in his glorification, and that this would be the great redemptive work that Christ would do, pictured in this Feast of Tabernacles that's come to fulfillment in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and outpouring of his spirit. And so, as we see sometimes in the Gospel of John, there's this big climactic event, there's this great event where on the last day, Jesus stands up at this beautiful, great day of the feast, and he proclaims who he is, He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And yet, even when Christ does that, there's this kind of aftermath that happens, after Jesus does something like this, and that's what we're going to look at today in our verses, the aftermath. That Jesus has proclaimed who he is. He's he's gone out of his way to show himself as the fulfillment of all that this Feast of Tabernacles pointed to, and yet the people are divided. The people are divided about who he is. They, They have different opinions, different responses to Jesus. We'll see... Some of the crowd, some of the people will see them misuse Scripture, mishandle Scripture, and miss who Jesus is. We'll see the religious leaders of the day misuse the Old Testament, misuse the law and the Scriptures, and get Jesus wrong. But through all of this, we'll see that our Lord is still at work in the heart of Nicodemus, and hopefully in you and I's hearts as well this morning. So I'm going to read our passage, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. This is the word of the Lord, starting at verse 40. When they, that is the crowds, heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, "'Why did you not bring him to us?' The officers answered, "'No one ever spoke like this man.'" The Pharisees then answered them, "'Have you also been deceived? "'Have any of the authorities "'or the Pharisees believed in him?' But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Then Nicodemus, who had gone to him, that is Jesus, before, and was one of them, a Pharisee, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we come in great need. We come weak, heavy laden, burdened by the world and the cares of this world, burdened by our own sin, burdened by our circumstances, the things in our life that are outside of our control that weigh us down, Lord. And as we come this morning, this Lord's Day, to gather with your people to worship you, the triune God, Lord, we admit that we are weak. And that uh, our spirit is willing, but our flesh indeed is weak. And so we come this morning asking for your help that by your spirit you would fill us, that you would strengthen us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of your word, and that the word would do its work in our very souls. That empowered by the spirit this morning, that your word would lay bare our very souls, that it would explode, expose our sin, our weakness and our need for Christ. We cannot do this on our own strength, and our own ability. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Spirit, and in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want to follow along with me on your outline, you can see on the back of your, um, um, on your bulletins there, we're going to kind of break this, this section down into three different parts. We're going to first look at the mis- Understanding of the scriptures from the crowd, so that'll be in verses 40 through 44. Then we'll look at the misusing of scripture by the religious leaders in verses 45 through 49. And then finally, we'll look at the, the hypocrisy of these people exposed and the right use of the scriptures in verses 50 through 52. So we'll see that there's this there's this event, right? Jesus had just gotten up on the great last day of the feast. He proclaimed, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That he's proclaiming himself as the source of living water. He's the one that's going to bring satisfaction to thirsty souls. He is the one who is going to bring life to his weary and dry people. And it's after these words that we hear the events that we read this morning in verses 40 through 52. And it's interesting, it says right there in verse 40, when they heard these words, when the crowds heard these words that Jesus said, we get all these different divisions. <laughs> it's just like an instant shattering, like a, like a splintering happens after Jesus said these words, that there's great confusion and misunderstanding that comes after the, the verses that we looked at last week, that Jesus has said who he is in relation to the Old Testament scriptures, but there's still confusion. He stood up and declared, this is who I am. And yet they remain misguided and divided about the person and work of Jesus. And this comes down to, I think, to try to find a theme through all these verses is, at the core, they are misunderstanding the scriptures. They are misunderstanding the Old Testament scriptures. That the people of this day, the Jews, were steeped in the Old Testament, right? It was their lifeblood. It was everything. They, they knew the scriptures. They knew the prophets. They knew the law. They knew Moses. They knew everything about the Old Testament. And they were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, the law, and the prophets. And you see that come out in the statements that they make in verses 40 through 44. And they, they claim three different things about Jesus, And if you look there, you can see those three different things. They claim, some claim that he is the prophet. This was the prophet promised in the book of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 18. Some claim that he is the Christ, the Messiah, promised in Psalm chapter 2. And others claim that he cannot be the Messiah because he is not born in Bethlehem. That because he's from Galilee or Nazareth, that he cannot be the Messiah. And so they're sort of viewing Jesus through the lens of the scriptures, but they're viewing him wrongly. They're misunderstanding the scriptures. They're looking to the Old Testament, which is a good thing. They're looking to the prophecies in the Old Testament, promising a Christ, a prophet, one to come from David's line. This is good and this is right, but at the core they've misunderstood the scriptures. And what do I mean? They've compartmentalized Jesus. They've compartmentalized him. In that day, the common understanding was, was that there would be a prophet, and then there would be a Christ. They had sort of viewed these two offices, these, this person of the prophet and this person of the Christ, as different people. And so some are saying, oh, he's the prophet. He's this one promised in Deuteronomy 18. And some are saying, no, 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 he's the Christ promised in Psalm chapter 2. And so there, there's division the about who Jesus is. And then the third point is that some are saying he cannot be the Christ because he's not, he doesn't come from Bethlehem. They thought Jesus only came from Nazareth in Galilee. They didn't realize that he was actually born in Bethlehem and then went back to the hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. So they're looking at the scriptures, but they're compartmentalizing him. They're saying he's either exclusively the prophet, exclusively the Christ, or such and such. They're not seeing all of these coming to their fulfillment in Christ. And so it's very interesting what they're doing. It's almost counterintuitive. And I tried to put some words to it. They're using the scriptures to limit who Jesus is. He can only be the prophet. He can only be the Christ. They're compartmentalizing who Christ is. And this is because... They have not read all of the Old Testament as finding its fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. And so they've, com- they've compartmentalized him, they've segmented it, they've said this is exclusively true, and so they've missed Jesus. They've missed the fullness of his person and work. How often do we compartmentalize who Jesus is Today right how often do we do this with not only Jesus but with the scriptures we we section it off we say yeah Jesus was a good teacher he was a good moral example you know he came and he walked on the earth he was a good he was a good teacher but I don't agree with everything he said maybe you've heard somebody say this right I, I think Jesus was a good teacher I think he was a good guy but I don't agree with everything he said or people will do this with the scriptures they'll say things like I like the love your neighbor part. I like the you know the prosperity part where Jesus promises that we're going to be wealthy. You know I like that part, but the kind of suffering part I don't like that part. I don't like the wickedness of my sin part. I want to put that to the side, and so we compartmentalize. We, we cut up the scriptures and we kind of separate Jesus into these two different people, and we can't do that. As C.S. C.S. Lewis famously said, he said Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic or he's Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He can't, be, he can't be just a good teacher, because if he's just a good teacher, he's the same good teacher that proclaims, I am the Lord. Come and serve me. I'm going back to heaven where I came from. He's either crazy, he's either a liar, or he is what he says he is. And the same thing is true with the Scriptures. Either the Scriptures are the Word of God, or they're not. They're, they're not. That's not how we can't compartmentalize these things. Either Christ or the Scriptures. Or we could say it like this. The error that these people made is they misunderstood the Scriptures. And so, to misunderstand the Scripture is to misunderstand who Christ is, who He is, and what He came to do. And the inverse is also true. To misunderstand who Christ is who he is and what he came to do, is to misunderstand the purpose and the point of the scriptures. And so even though this leads the people to disagreement, and it even leads some to anger, they want to arrest him, they want to take him and and put him in prison, we see the sovereignty of our Lord, that he is in full control of the situation, and no one is even able to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So this is the crowd. And then the narrative moves to the officers. So this brings us to our second point of the day. That not only is there a misunderstanding about Christ and the Old Testament scriptures from the people, but the religious leaders of the day misuse the scriptures for their own legalistic purposes. The religious leaders of the day misuse the scriptures for their own purposes legalistic purposes. That if you remember back in verse 32, these Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the, 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 the high ups in the Jewish religion, they had sent officers to arrest Jesus. Back in verse 32, we saw that. They sent these these officers of the Sanhedrin, the, the court of the officials, and they told him to go arrest Jesus. And we see Jesus... Um, We have a discourse with those people, and we don't really know what happens, but we find out what happens in verse 45. They ask the officers, the religious leaders ask the officers, why did you not bring him? Why did you not bring him? You had one job, (laughs) if you've ever seen that meme. You had one job, you had one task to do, and you didn't do it. They are furious with these officers for not bringing Jesus and arresting him. And so we can think in our heads why. Why did they not arrest him? Was Jesus too strong for them? Did he break away? Did they see a miracle that Jesus performed and then they they were kind of amazed and didn't do anything? Look at what they say in verse 46. This is what the officers say, the reason they give why they did not arrest Jesus. They say, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. It's not the strength of Jesus. It's not the miracles of Jesus. It's the words of Christ that literally disarms them. They're amazed at the words of Christ. Their consciences are cut. These officers, these employees of the religious leaders, the priests and the Pharisees, they could not complete the task that was given to them. They had one job and they can't because they've never heard someone speak like this. I like what one commentator said. Herman Ritterbaugh says, What prevented the officers from arresting Jesus was that their own consciences were faced with a power greater than could be attributed to a mere human being. A power for which, as ordinary people, they had no words. They're left speechless by the words of Christ. They are literally disarmed by the word of God himself. No one ever spoke like this man. But as Spurgeon said, the same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. And so this words of Christ that melted the hearts of these officers is the same word that only enrages and hardens the heart of the religious leaders. And we read about their response in verses 47 through 49. They're enraged. They're furious. They had Jesus right there. They had the people ready to arrest him. And they get away. And it's very interesting the three things that they say. There's three statements in these three verses. And this is like a 101 class on legalism. A 101 class on hypocrisy. What is the first thing they say in verse 47? They turn to the officers and then they say, Are you deceived? Are you deceived? Have you been led astray? The first thing they do, legalism 101, is to put people down. They, they're assuming that these officers are wrong and they put them down and they say, Are you deceived? They're assuming that they're wrong. Second thing they do is they turn and they put themselves up as the standard of right and wrong. They say, Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in this man? They basically put themselves up as the standard of truth. Well, we haven't believed in him, so what what makes you think that you can believe in him? Pharisee legalism 101. Put others down, raise yourself up as the standard of right and wrong. And the third thing that they do is they say, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Basically what they're saying is, Clearly, these people are uneducated. They're clearly wrong. They lack true knowledge of Scripture, and therefore, they're under the curse of God. So Legalism 101, put other people down, raise yourself up as a standard, and then pronounce everybody that doesn't agree with you as accursed. This is what the Pharisees did. This is their legalism, their misuse of the Scripture. It's very subtle what they've done. We have to see this because it's very subtle It might not seem that way, but it is. What they've done is they've replaced the scripture with their own understanding. They've replaced the scripture with their own understanding. They've replaced the standard of God's perfect, unchanging law with themselves. They've replaced the law of God with themselves. And this is what legalism does at its very core, is it misuses the word of God, and specifically the law of God. It uses the law of God as a club with which to beat people rather than a mirror to reflect our sin and a guide to lead people to Christ. It says, unless your righteousness looks like mine, you are accursed. It makes man the standard, not God. It makes the commandments and doctrines of men supreme, not the unchanging moral law of God. If you look at the passage, the Pharisees had made themselves the standard. Have we believed? Oh, then you shouldn't even think about that. Are we doing it? Well, then you should be doing it. They've made themselves the standard of right, and everyone is measured by them. But it's amazing how John creates this narrative because he starts to see the crack in their foundation, and this giant gaping crack in the foundation of the Pharisees is their hypocrisy, their hypocrisy. The great irony of what the Pharisees are doing here is that the very law that they claim to uphold is the very law that they themselves are transgressing. The great irony is that the law that these Pharisees claim to uphold is the very law that they are transgressing. And this brings us to our third and final point this morning, the the hypocrisy exposed and the right use of the scriptures. That the narrative picks up with Nicodemus in verse 50. Now, we should remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3, this very famous passage in John chapter 3 where nicodemus comes to our lord by night nicodemus is also a pharisee he comes to our lord by night and he compliments jesus he says jesus he calls him rabbi he says you're a good teacher i know that you've come from god because of the great works that you're doing and so that sounds like a good start right maybe maybe nicodemus is on the road to salvation but jesus stops him in his tracks and he says you can't even enter the kingdom unless you've been born again. You can't even enter the kingdom unless you've been born again. And the narrative just sort of ends shortly after that. We don't really hear about Nicodemus again until John chapter 7, verse 50. And we see that Nicodemus is the same one, this is the same man that had gone to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he also is a Pharisee. He also is a religious leader of the day. And he responds to his fellow Pharisees. He responds to them. And it's amazing what Nicodemus says to them. In one quote, in one question, he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He says this in verse 51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? He is pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Why? Because in the previous verse, they said that the crowds are cursed because they do not know the law. Yet the Pharisees are the ones that are getting ready to arrest Jesus, put him to death, without ever giving him a hearing. So this was a law in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says... People need to have a hearing before they can be judged. This is standard practice for most cultures in our day. But it's also found in the law of God in the book of Deuteronomy, verse chapter 1, verse 16. That in order for a man to be judged, he needs to be heard first and tried. And the Pharisees are not doing that. They're ready to arrest him and kill him. So the very law that they claim to uphold, they are transgressing. They're being dishonest. They're saying one thing, they're doing another. They're judging someone, but they are doing the exact same thing. They are condemning the crowds for not knowing the law, and yet they themselves transgress it. Or as one commentator said, these great guardians of the law cannot keep it themselves. The great guardians of the law, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they cannot even keep the law. And, and people are kind of hard on Nicodemus, I'll say this. I was looking at a lot of commentaries People are kind of hard on Nicodemus here. They they say he could have done better, you know, he should have been more forward, he should have proclaimed Christ here. There's, There's much we can say about that. Maybe Nicodemus could have been more bold, maybe he could have been more zealous, but it's amazing that he here rightly uses the word of God to call out their hypocrisy. He uses the word of God rightly to call out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He uses the very thing that they claim to uphold, the law of God, he uses that to shine a light on their hypocrisy and their lying, basically. And so we see in verse 52 that the Pharisees want nothing to do with this. They don't want to answer his question because he asked them a question. Aren't we, supposed to, aren't we supposed to give this man a hearing? They don't even answer his question. They don't even listen to what he's saying. They just say, they simply put him down. They change the subject, and they continue in their pride. In verse 52, they say, are you also from Galilee? They're saying, are you, are you the same kind of person that's from Galilee? Are you following Jesus too? It says, search, and you will see that there is no prophet that comes from Galilee. Right? Search, and you will see that there is no prophet that comes from Galilee. They're basically making fun of Nicodemus and putting him down, changing the subject. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. They just want to change the subject and move on. So that concludes our study from 40 to 52. So we have to step back as we do each week and try to bring these truths to bear on our hearts. What's our takeaway? How can we apply this passage of God's word? The first thing we need to do is this. We must, caref- we must be careful to use the word of God in a right way. We must be careful to use the word of God rightly. That the scriptures are not a blank canvas that we get to bring our own thoughts and interpretations to. We don't, we don't get to attribute our own meaning to whatever verse we think. And this is sort of a common thing in our day. You know, if you've ever gone to do a Bible study and everybody kind of sits around and says, well, what do you think it means? Well, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? The scriptures are not that way. It's not a blank thing, not just good sayings that we get to put whatever meaning we want on it. It's the word of God. It's God's revelation to us. He's telling us how we might be saved. And I liked how the Westminster Shorter Catechism put it. It says that what, what's contained in the scriptures, it says two things. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of men. So it's not only talking about the doctrine, what we are to believe about God, but the devotion that we are to have to our Savior. And what both the crowds and the Pharisees did in our passage today is they misused the word of God. They misunderstood it. They misused the scriptures. What is Paul saying in 1 Timothy? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. <laughs> the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He's saying there is a wrong way to use the law. There is a wrong way to use the scriptures. And the, the legalism of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is not something new. <laughs> it's not only exclusive to the Pharisees. If you turn to Romans chapter 2, Paul does the exact same thing and exposes the hypocrisy of the Jews in that day. And if you wanted to turn there, you could look there with me. In Romans chapter 2, Paul, after condemning the Gentiles for their blatant, open sin, their rejection of God, their denying that there is even a God, he goes on this long list of all the great errors of of the atheists, essentially. But then he doesn't stop there. He turns to the Jews and he says to these people that think they're righteous in of themselves, he says this in chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Notice that language of judgment. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The, the Pharisees condemned the people for breaking the law of God. They themselves broke the law of God. He says this in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He's saying, you who, who preach great things about how to flee from sin and how not to commit adultery, you do the very same things. You're hypocrites. You're, you're liars. You're dishonest. You're not, being, you're not being honest about who you are. You're condemning people for doing the very same things that you do. And how often do we see hypocrisy in our own day, right? In our own hearts. That we are all hypocrites. (laughs) Sorry to tell you that, but we are all hypocrites. We all condemn people for doing the very same things that we do. We say one thing, we have this perfect standard in our own mind, and somehow we always fill that standard, and yet no one else lives up to it. What did Jesus say in Matthew 23? Jesus, at the end of his ministry, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting, ready to, he's getting ready to be betrayed and handed over. But before he does that, he pronounces woes on the Pharisees. Listen to some of these words that he says about the religious leaders of the day. Just I, to say this, this, this Pharisaicalism, this legalism, it's it's in the world, it's, it's in the unbeliever, right? Unbelievers are just as hypocritical as believers, but this sort of pharisaicalism is unique to those who are in religious circles. We are more prone to be hypocritical, to be pharisaical because we attach it to religion. Listen to what Jesus says here. For they preach, this is the religious leaders, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds, why? To be seen by others. And then he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You blind guides. This is not the stuff you hear from Jesus in Sunday school. This is him laying woes upon the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat only to swallow a camel. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones. This is hypocrisy. This is legalism. This is pharisaicalism. So the question we have to ask ourselves when we see that in our own hearts is, what's the remedy for this? What is the the remedy for the hypocrisy of our own souls? Because we do the very same things that Jesus pronounced woes on to these religious leaders. And the the remedy for this is to rightly use the word of God. It's Christ himself. It's, It's a right use of the law and the gospel. As believers... It's not wrong for us to call out sin. It's not wrong for us to see sinful acts and call those out as sinful. But what, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Before you take out the speck from someone's eye, you need to remove the plank from your own eye. That there's an inward looking that we need to do. That we need to have the law of God bear our souls, make our sin the most prominent. What does Paul say? I'm the chief of sinners. We need to see our sinfulness first and foremost, have the remedy of the gospel applied to our hearts. And then we can rightly use the word of God to have it bear on the souls of others. So this shouldn't prevent us from calling out sin. Jesus calls out sin here. But it it should cause us to examine ourselves first and rightly use the scriptures. And so the second thing we need to do this morning is we need to see Christ rightly. We need to see Christ. Christ rightly. That these crowds had a limited view of who Jesus was, right? They say, he's only the prophet, or he's only the Christ, or he's only this, or he's only that. And in our day, what do people say? Well, he's only a good example, right? He couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be the one that saves us from our sins. He's only a good example. And you might say, well, what's the big deal, right? Jesus was the only perfect human. He always did what was right. He always loved God. He always loved his neighbor. What's so bad about that saying, Kendall? The problem is that if Jesus is just a good example, you and I are lost. You and I are lost. It turns the gospel of God into law. It says, Jesus is a good example, just do that. Jesus did this, Just do that. And what we're saying, the gospel is, as we read, what is saving faith? It's not go and do. It's go and believe. It's have faith. It's receive Christ and rest on him alone for salvation. He did not come just as a good example. He came to be our Savior. He came to save us from our sins. He came to live, die, and rise again for us. And one final thing to point out here. It's very interesting, the story of Nicodemus. We kind of come to this middle point in Nicodemus' life. We saw him in John 3. We saw him again today in John chapter 7, but that's not where his story ends. At the end of John, in John 19, we see Nicodemus publicly profess Christ. He he wraps him and he puts him in the tomb. He's saying, this is the Savior. I I know this. He's publicly professing him. And so we know that Nicodemus was a believer and whether or not he was born again here in in John chapter 7, we don't know. But we know by the end he is a follower of Christ. He's gone from a Pharisee To a follower. And maybe this moment here in John 7 was what awakened his eyes to the glory of Christ. Maybe this moment was what God used to convict him. He saw the hypocrisy, he saw the inconsistency of the Pharisees, and he said, I need something more. That Jesus is not just a teacher come from God, he is God. He is not just a teacher come from God, he is God. And if we remember what Jesus said to him, maybe these words of Jesus were echoing in his mind. You must be born again. What did he say to him in in John chapter 3? He said, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? What he's basically saying to him is, if you knew the true purpose of the Old Testament, of the Scriptures, you would understand that it's all about me. I'm not just the prophet, I'm not just the Christ, I'm all of it. (laughs) What did he say in John chapter five? You search the scriptures because you think that in them, in and of themselves, you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. It is they that bear witness about me. He's saying, I am the prophet and the Christ. I am the offspring of David, his son, yet I am David's Lord. I am the one that was not only born in Bethlehem, the city of the great king, but I am also the one from Nazareth in Galilee, the place of no name, the place of a lowly estate. I am the one who came not only to show you your sin, to point it out, to unveil it, but I'm also the one that came to take your sin, to suffer in your place and fulfill the law. On your behalf, when you could not. And so, this new birth that Christ brings by the Spirit, this outpouring of the Spirit, gives you and I power and strength not only to see our sin and to kill it and to hate it, but to desire to do God's law from a right heart, to seek to obey His commands, not just the doctrines and commandments of men, but the law of God itself. And so what is our response to this? What's our response to John chapter 7? It's to look to Christ. It's to look to him. It's to rest in him alone. It's to receive all that he's done for us. We're all hypocrites. We're all liars. We're all deceivers. Christ came to be the only one that could fulfill the law perfectly and actually say, I have done it and not be a hypocrite. And so we're to rest in him alone to receive all that he's done, receive his righteousness that you and I could not earn. We don't deserve. And so we should receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. So let's pray this morning as we look to Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, Lord. We pray that you would help us. By your spirit to see the scriptures rightly, to see Christ rightly this morning, that he's not just the prophet, but he is the Christ. He is not just the one from Bethlehem, but the one who is from heaven itself that's come down in the form of a servant, taking on our nature, taking the judgment and the liabilities of the law, and he has fulfilled it all so that we could have everlasting life with you by faith this morning. And so even though we can see this morning the hypocrisy of our own hearts, the ways that we we make ourselves look good on the outside, we want people to see how we have it all together, Lord. You know the inward parts of us. You know that we do not have it all together, that we are broken, that we are sinners, and that we need your grace this morning. So would you come? Would you cleanse us? Would you purify us? And as Isaiah had done to him, he had the burning coal placed on his lips this morning would the, with the burning fire of Christ, cleanse us and purify us, but there was no pain for Isaiah. And this morning, we know that there's no judgment, there's no fire and curse left for the people of God, that our sin has been atoned for, we have been made right with the God of the universe. Let's praise him and thank him this morning. We ask that you would help us. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen.